Thank you very much, Christina. Great. That's a very kind introduction. Um, so let's see here. This is what I hope we'll explore today. And by the way, um, there's a lot of good stuff in the slides. Yeah, we have explored the practice of printing out handouts in advance or sending them out to people. It's logistically complex. Plus then sometimes in what one hopes is an experiential uh, workshop, people are busy looking at their PowerPoints. So trying to find some kind of middle way here, of course, in a Buddhist center, uh, I'm just going to use the slides as a point of departure, a kind of springboard for experiential practice informed by insight to some extent one hopes, uh, and also make the slides available to you. So if you want to get a copy of the slides, which you can use for your own purposes in any way that you like, including adapting them for your work or sharing them with others or anything you want to do, we just need you to give me your email address, which I will not share with anyone, uh, and we'll send you out a link to a full-color PDF of the slides. So that's what that is. Unless you say just slides, I'll automatically subscribe you to my free Just One Thing newsletter. It goes out to 121,000 people now. It's for free. It goes out every week. It's it's a practice newsletter. The most recent one is an illustration of what it's about. It's called Know You're a Good Person. So that's a practice. Just one thing. Kind of float with it. Have it in your mind. Uh, Know you're a good person. uh, and each week there's a different practice. If you ever want to unsubscribe from it, it's always easy. I don't like sending things. I don't like receiving things I don't want, so I don't want to send things you don't want. And if you already do um, get the newsletter, you won't get two copies. We'll just send one to one address. So, um, and if you don't want the newsletter, just say just slides. Is that clear? Great. And we'll sort it out. Um, I think that's it. Well, so what's this about here? Foundations. Uh, I'd like to explore with you an experiential progression through, for me, four fundamental steps in the movement toward what the Buddha described as awakening. I'm not anticipating complete irrevocable enlightenment for myself or anyone else here today, although, why not? Why not be open to that? That said... This workshop is really a very direct engagement with what I think of as the deep end of the pool practice. So nowness simply means coming right into the present moment. In a sense, what I'm trying to do is reverse engineer awakened mind and think plausibly now informed by 2,500 years of development of of human knowledge, um, try to think plausibly about what in the world could be the underlying conditions, causes and conditions, in the body. Because much as we can be mindful of body, we are factually body full of mind. It is the body that is making the mind. There may well be something transcendental or supernatural that's outside the natural frame. I'll speak to that a little later on. Uh, But inside the natural frame of... um, Ordinary reality, it is the body that is making the mind uh, in ways that still remain somewhat mysterious, and yet it is the body that is making the mind. So how can we understand what is happening in the body, especially in the nervous system, especially in its brain, to, um, to inform the way that we engage practice, especially experiential practice? So working backwards from what in the world could be going on in the brain of a Buddha 
Um, if you read the accounts of people that are very far along in practice, they essentially refer to these four things. Nowness, wholeness, allness, oneness. Sometimes the language is different. There are other things that can get in the mix, of course. I'm not, I'm not trying to reduce the entirety of the spiritual path to four words. But that said, what do they talk about? Their own state. These people, saints and sages and awakened ones, or people very far along in practice. Uh, one, there's a sense of being dropped right into the moment, right at the front edge of now, continuously. How do you do that with a brain that in many ways is designed to be preoccupied with the past and hooked on the possibilities of the future, for better or worse? So nowness. <clears throat> what are some plausible neural factors of stable, resting, right at the front edge of now, continuously letting go, continuously receiving the next emergent moment in the stream of consciousness. That's just where we're going to start. From there, wholeness, how do you come out into a sense of the body as a whole, and then experience and mind as a whole. Wholeness. And there are neural networks that support that sense of so-called gestalt awareness, or a, a sense of integration, or in the Buddhist tradition, one of the factors of profound states of absorption is called, in Pali, ekagata, or singleness of mind. Right. And by the way, you don't need to have any background with this stuff. Neuroscience or contemplative practice. It helps a little, especially background with contemplative practice. But for me, these are opportunities and possibilities that are our human endowment and available to us all as much as we can go there. And so that's, for me, what I, I hope to do today is to go there with you. So, wholeness. And then, um, and, and as I'll just say one more thing about wholeness, uh, it's about taking mind as a whole. Because if you look at the structural nature of any and all suffering, struggle, neurotic process, which I know from the inside out. If you look at the nature, ordinary fussing, ordinary feuding, ordinary chasing, the structure of it is some part is tussling with another part of thoughts, feelings, as Freud talked about, inner conflict, of Shakespeare and others as well. So on the other hand, if you go out to mind as a whole and you just take mind as mind, just in terms of oh wow, it's all there happening simultaneously, including its awareness aspects, in that moment, there's no problem. There may be pain, there may be anxiety, there may be unfulfilled longings, and there's no problem about it. Nothing is struggling with anything else at the level of mind as a whole. And we'll see that experientially. Then allness, uh, there are different uh, neural processes that help, that on the one hand, create a sense of uh, self and world separation. And on the other hand, there are neural processes and factors that can help us go into a sense of being one with all things, tuned into everything, and um, in which the self-world, self-other boundary starts blurring. Um, people still remain functional, but there's much less of a sense of me against life, me separate from world, me tussling with everything else. And instead of that, 
much more of a sense that this local moment of consciousness is um, a local wave in the vast ocean of causes. It's, an ex- it's distinct. What's happening locally is distinct, meaningfully. And yet, really, it's an expression of the larger whole. And there is plausible underlying neurology that, uh, neuropsychology really, that um, fosters and enables that. And we'll explore that as well. And then we're starting to really edge out with what I call oneness, which has to do with uh, an intimation of what the Buddha referred to as the unconditioned, the deathless, that which does not change, that which is a field of possibility distinct from determined, conditioned actuality. And um, I think it's plausibly possible to deepen in one's uh, sort of uh, accessibility to the unconditioned, to the transcendental. The Buddha very clearly spoke about it, not as a matter of belief or faith, but as a matter of investigation and practice and immediate experience. But I think it's possible inside the conditioned natural frame to train in such a way, and as the Buddha and other teachers in Buddhism and outside the lineage of Buddhism have taught, it is possible to train inside the natural frame in such a way that one becomes increasingly permeable to or accessible to that which perhaps lies outside the natural frame, such as the field of unconditioned possibility always just prior to the emergence of this moment of conditioned actuality. And so we'll be exploring that at the very end, including some uh, very profound and blunt and direct um, teachings of the Buddha that have come down to us over over the centuries. All righty. So that's what I hope to do. If that's, a, if that's a bigger bite than you were signed up for, at any moment in time, it's always okay to just space out. Think about the Golden State Warriors or I don't know what, something pleasant, something pleasant, whatever your cup of tea is. A cup of tea might be pleasant. Anyway, um, it's really okay. And uh, we'll just kind of see where we get to. Uh, and um, I think that's, that's, that's it. Okay, so in terms of setting a little bit more on the foundations and then we'll start sliding into practice, okay. So I do hope to spend the bulk of our day in one form of practice or another and then certainly have plenty of time for questions and discussion and I'll present some information too. And I'll happily talk with people at the breaks and at lunch and stick around a bit afterwards as well. All right? And I really hope you have fun. I personally think... The coolness factor here is really high. So, see for yourself. See for yourself. As the Buddha said himself. Okay. As best we know. When people say the Buddha said, it's really like, that's our best guess. But anyway. Okay. So, uh, I hope to explore this stuff with you at what I think of as the um, intersection of three circles. Uh, neuroscience, psychology, contemplative wisdom. The wisdom tradition I know best is Buddhism, although I've had some experience with other traditions. And inside the Buddhist tradition, the the aspect of it I know best is Roots Buddhism, the early original teachings of the Buddha and his uh, close contemporaries and soon after, as best we know. At the center of those three circles is pretty neat stuff. I think that you could call it applied neurodharma. Now... That's not such a glitzy title for a book of any kind, but still, I think that's a pretty good, pretty good territory. 
If you get two of those intersections working, you're in good good shape. Get all three of them working for you. That's really pretty good. In the larger basis here, I'm going to emphasize cultivation. <clears throat> in that, um, I think that uh, it, at the end of the day, we're okay? Okay, great. We... This guy's working that one, so it's a... Okay, super, thank you. And by the way, thank him. You're my mission control. I really appreciate it. Okay, great. Okay, so uh, how do we help the benefits of our practices leave lasting beneficial residues behind? As a long-time person in the human potential movement, mindfulness movement, uh, clinical psychology, teacher, parent therapist and practitioner myself, I'm really struck again and again by the dirty little secret that so much of what travels through the mind that's beneficial leaves no lasting trace behind. It was nice. It was a good conversation with a friend. Nice meditation. Good yoga session. Nice retreat. Good therapy appointment. Week later. Same as usual. Dirty little secret. And so the question then becomes, how do we help the fruits of our practice sink in as much as possible? How do we gain as much as possible from what is beneficially streaming through the mind? And so that will be a recurring theme that I'll keep returning to. Some of the practical wisdom that speaks to that question is embedded in this saying, it's increasingly well known from the work of the Canadian neuroscientist Donald Hebb, that neurons which fire together, wire together. So we have this two-stage process. We must begin with some kind of pattern of activation, particularly one that is conscious, that we're aware of, firing together. And then, if there's any kind of lasting change, they must wire together as well. Wiring together being a kind of an umbrella statement for a lot of lasting changes of neural structure and function, most of which don't actually involve literally new synaptic connections being made. But there is still an underlying change inside the natural frame, inside the body, that underpins any kind of lasting mental change. So that will be something that I will draw your attention to again and again. Now that you've been working hard and you've got your neurons firing together, how can we help um, them wire together as well so there are lasting beneficial changes that stick with you, stick with your mental ribs as you go through your day? All this said... Uh, I love this quote from Ani Tenzin Palmo, an English woman who spent 12 years you know, on retreat in Tibet in a cave and then probably another 10, 12 years after her. Just very profound. Uh, and she points out the fact that while there is at this point a lot of science that um, can closely connect the movement of information through the nervous system with the changes, underlying changes in neural activity, the so-called neural correlates of consciousness, how that process, uh, which in my view uh, uh, proceeds inside the natural frame, in which we have underlying materiality, neural processes, embedded in the body, embedded in nature and the 
material universe altogether. How can it, and, and we, that's pretty clear. And then also it's pretty clear that those material processes represent immaterial information in the nervous system. Meanings, signals, data, programs, etc. Okay? That's all pretty clear. Wild as it is. And, and I think of that as a natural process unfolding. I think information is a natural phenomenon, even though it's categorically distinct, since it's immaterial, from the material substrates that represent it, of any kind, including, for example, the meaning of the material, the immaterial meaning of the material squiggles up there on the screen. That's all pretty straightforward. How that becomes the qualia of the color red, how that becomes the smell of cinnamon, or that ache in your heart when you feel hurt by somebody. Hard problem in consciousness. Nobody really knows. A lot of great theories. I think we're quite a ways away from a full scientific account of how experience, phenomenology, the mind in, in, in that sense, proceeds. So it's in uh, the frame of a significant amount of humility and modesty that we're going to proceed here. It could well be that we need something outside of the natural frame for a full account of the smell of cinnamon, the taste of chocolate. Uh, don't know. But meanwhile, there's lots of practical stuff we can do inside the natural frame. As a kind of guiding framework here, I think of practice loosely as like a three-legged stool. I'm a methods guy. I consume a ton of research. I produce very little. I mostly apply it and teach around it. I'm really interested in what works. And if I may say, the Buddha was much the same. Uh, He was very interested in what is true. He was even more interested in what works, what's practice. He tended to acknowledge, comment on, and then disengage rapidly from philosophical debates about what is true. But he was deeply interested in what causes suffering and what causes its end, the field of practice. So in terms of the field of practice, I kind of think of practice as like a three-legged stool with three important elements. And to use the traditional words in Pali, P-A-L-I, the language of early Buddhism, and I like the sound of the words in my mouth, I think of the three-legged stool of consisting of metta, sati, and bhavana. Metta being the word for friendliness, that's the root of that word, friendliness, also commonly translated these days as loving-kindness, heartfeltness, love, warm-heartedness, courage. I would locate in this territory as well. The root of the word for courage is heart. Heart, having heart, taking heart. Second, sati, mindfulness, sustained present moment awareness. Sustained present moment awareness. The root of the word for sati in Pali is memory. It's Mindfulness is about recollectedness, staying recollected rather than forgetful and distracted. That's the second of the three legs of the three legs of the stool of practice, in my view. And then the third leg, which goes back to the quotation from the work of Donald Hebb, neurons that fire together, wire together, is cultivation. We're to cultivate wisdom, cultivate wise intentions, cultivate loving kindness, cultivate compassion, learn from our experience. All three legs are important. You might think to yourself, which one is really strong, which one is not so strong. Um, If you want to move, by the way, because of the sun, feel really free to to move around or put on some sunglasses or whatever is good for you. Um, 
Okay? Got that so far? It's kind of a framework. In um, the as mindfulness and, frankly, non-dual teachings and some of the wisdom traditions have come to the West, in my opinion, there's been an overvaluing of a sort of passive, bear-witnessing, choiceless awareness stance as the be-all and end-all of spiritual practice. I think it's incredibly important. I think it's foundational to be able to be with your experience and to sustain present moment awareness of your experience. But that's not the whole of practice. Uh, for many reasons, including the fact that the, the mind rests upon the brain and the brain is a physical system that doesn't just change on its own. Uh, it particularly doesn't tend to release negative patterns because of its negativity bias, it really tries to hold on to them. And the brain is a physical system that's the basis of beneficial changes in the mind. Again, doesn't just change on its own. There are things we need to do to, to kind of cultivate and help it change for the better. Sometimes people set this up as either or. Like, well, if you're mindful, you can't be also involved in changing your mind for the better. That's totally not true. That's not what the Buddha taught. While being mindful of the mind stream, one can also engage wise effort to try to release or reduce or prevent or abandon what's problematic, what's painful, what's harmful, what's stressful, what's hurtful to oneself and others. And while being mindful of the mind stream, one can also engage wise effort in terms of cultivation, um, bringing into being, protecting, increasing, preserving that which is beneficial for oneself and others. It all works together. Why not play with all the tools? All the toys. That's it. Why not play with all the toys? Um, This is a beautiful quotation, I think. I think of it often uh, from the Dhammapada. Think not lightly of good, saying it will not come to me. Drop by drop is the water pot filled. Likewise, the wise one, gathering it little by little, fills oneself with good. That's enormously hopeful. So may we all, me included, all the volunteers, Christina, the people who work here, all beings, fill themselves with many drops of good today that last. Even monastics uh, in the uh, Theravadan, Theravadan is called uh, tradition that spirit rock sits in sometimes mistakenly identified as vipassana tradition. Vipassana just means insight, which is not uh, the property of any Buddhist tradition or any tradition altogether. Um, In the Theravadan tradition, which is very deeply grounded in a stance of mindfulness and uh, an enormous valuing of a stance of choiceless awareness of bear witnessing, that said, even the monks... Uh, and nuns as well, the monastics, are into cultivation. It's okay. It's okay to try to help wholesome, beneficial things to arise. And then it's okay to help yourself try to gain and learn and grow and heal from them. It's okay. It's better than okay. It's important and good to do. For your own sake and then for other people. Okay. So that's the foundation Any quick question or comment about what I've said so far, including anything about the logistics today? I should say, we'll take a break in the the morning, break in the afternoon. I'll end very close to 4.30. I encourage you to stay to the sweet end, not the bitter end. 
and uh, it's also okay to get up and take a break for yourself in the flow of things. If you want to use the bathroom or get some tea or just take a little break, <laughs> whatever you want to do is really fine. Just try to be attentive to people around you. So, Rick, I have a question. So, Christina said no, no mobile phones. I didn't bring a notebook. Is it okay if I take some notes on this? Hundred percent, hundred percent. And and uh, with the power vested in me by this chair, <laughs> if. If, if, you're a, if, you're, if you're a person who needs to be reachable in the room, you know, you're, maybe you're a parent and you're worried about your child and, or uh, you're a professional and people may need to reach you or um, you're a contractor and you need to know if the roof leaked or not, something, you know, it's okay. Just put your phone on mute if you can. And just, again, it, do what's good for you. Okay, great. Oh, by the way, this is being recorded. And it'll be freely posted to a wonderful organization called Dharma Seed, D-H-A-R-M-A Seed. And it usually takes about a week at most to get the talks and practices recorded. And uh, that's accessible as well. So in terms of taking notes or not taking notes here, just know that you'll have backup in that way. Okay. Any other questions or comments so far? You okay? You're all signed up? All right, this is, this is the opportunity to leave break without a break. <laughs> okay, good. All right, so here we go. So, foundational. As a basis for entering into nowness, wholeness, wholeness, oneness, it really helps to acquire some fundamental steadiness of mind. Uh, the Buddha and other teachers emphasize steadiness of mind and the establishment of steadiness of mind before jumping into a bunch of esoteric dharma teach and teachings or jumping into uh, just bare, just moment-to-moment present presence. It's hard to sustain moment-to-moment presence if you don't have steadiness of mind. But very often these days people jump quickly to, into wide-open awareness, moment-to-moment presence, or esoteric insight teachings without first doing, laying down the building blocks of steadiness of mind. My own practice really took one of its major steps about 20 or so years ago is when a teacher just in a small group I was in said, well, what about concentration? What about steadiness of mind? Oh, wow. (laughs) Who knew? So I'm going to start there with you today. Okay, so I thought what we could do is begin with a meditation And in this meditation, um, I will name six neurologically plausible factors of steadiness of attention, which is not necessarily natural because uh, animals in our evolutionary history who just dropped dropped into moment-to-moment awareness, locked onto something like, oh the light on the water, this banana. Oh, wow. So one with the banana. Chomp. They got eaten. The ones that survived tended to be distractible and vigilant and skittery and nervous and irritable. And where are their great-grandchildren today? Plus, there's normal variation in temperament. 
I think of some people as sort of like anxious, rigid turtles at one end of the temperamental spectrum. And then we have spirited, hyperactive jackrabbits at the other end, naturally. And the tribe needs all types. And then a lot of tweeners in the middle. So what if you're a jackrabbity kind of person? And you're trying to do spiritual practices that have historically been designed for turtle, designed by turtles inside turtle pens for turtles to make them a better turtle. Right? And then last, what do you do if you grow up in a jackrabbity, ADD-ish kind of culture? So cultivating factors that support steadiness of mind is really useful. So I'll go through six of them. Then I'll comment briefly when we're done uh, as to how they might have helped. And after I go through the six, I'll invite you to do something that is harder than it might sound at first, which is to sustain attention consistently uh, to the sensations of breathing for five minutes in a row. Every breath. Depending on the person, it's 75 to 100 breaths often, sometimes a little less. That's a lot of breaths from beginning to end. Inhalation, exhalation for five minutes concentrated on it, disengaging from everything else, um, becoming increasingly absorbed in the sensations of breathing. And then we'll talk a bit about it. Okay, so that's a practice. You're welcome to sit or stand or lie down. If you start to snore and it's disturbing, I will probably come by and tap your foot. Um, Just knowing that usually prevents snoring. Uh, So just know that. Uh, No big deal. And you can have your eyes open or closed, and it helps to sit or, or lie or stand in a way that supports alertness. There, there, you know, other qualities that support that too. Dignity, not being uptight. Uh, I like uh, Suzuki, um, uh, Joan, uh, Roshi Jones' um, line, firm in the back, soft in the front. It's kind of a nice way to think about how to go through life as well uh, in terms of posture. Okay, so these are the basics of meditation. Uh, if you haven't meditated much, it's very natural. Uh, what you're trying to help yourself do, basically, is come to rest while remaining present. Letting the body come to rest, letting the mind come to rest, letting worries and stresses come to rest, letting, go, uh, letting problem-solving come to rest, chasing desire come to rest, while remaining wide open and awake. That's the essence of the process. If you don't want to pay attention to your breath, it's really okay for some people, especially those who've had a lot of maybe trauma. It's not so good to use the breath. It's alarming. Feel really free to pick something else, like a sensation that's more neutral elsewhere in your body, like in your feet or fingers, uh, or a word or an image. Uh, just whatever's good for you. But it does help to have some object of attention to, to help, you sit, help you stay stable. I kind of think of the object of attention as like a buoy. And I'm resting my arm on the buoy in nice, warm, tropical waters. And the waves, the swells kind of come through of thought or sound or sensation. And I stay with the buoy. I'm not trying to fight the waves. The waves pass through, and there's an ongoingness of contact with the buoy, the object of attention. That's it's a, a felt, kinesthetically felt image that works for me. So let's begin.
being here, taking a moment to come home to your body, being aware of it. As it is useful, engaging gently uh, supportive, helpful factors such as an attitude of acceptance. There may be pain, there may be worry, there may be a cloud of depressed mood. Whatever's there is there. There may also be gratitude, open-heartedness, sounds, sensation, people around you. Allowing all of it not needing to resist anything or brace tension falling away. Also not following anything, not following any ideas, not following little fantasy bubbles, little mini-movies that appear not resisting them, not suppressing anything, not trying to suppress thought, just not fueling it or following it, not engaging it. Simply being, remaining aware of the body, now, this practice, like any practice, in effect two things are happening. There is the intended practice, such as relaxed present moment awareness. And then there is an awareness of what's happening in the mind as a result. So from time to time, you're making an effort in your mind, even just a tiny effort, and then you're seeing what the result is. I'm just naming a very normal process.
So as I mentioned, I'll name progressively six factors of steadiness of mind that support what is called concentration or the ability to become increasingly concentrated in your presence and also increasingly absorbed in a particular object of attention. And these states of concentration and absorption are valued because they are both purifying and uh, supportive of insight. Insight into your own mind, its qualities, its dynamics, its nature. So the first factor is intention. Deliberately, consciously, intending to be present. Intending to sustain attention to some object, such as the sensations of breathing. Breathing in a particular place, such as around the upper lip, or elsewhere in the body, such as the diaphragm, or, as we'll be exploring later today, a sense of the whole body as you breathe. So setting an intention, both top-down, has a sense of willfulness to it, and bottom-up, in other words, giving yourself over to Letting yourself be carried along by what could feel like an embodied, from the inside out, giving over to the way you'd like to be here. The way you like to be in terms of sustained presence. Setting an intention. it's like to be intentional, to be resolute, not in an uptight way, but in a way that is committed. second factor is relaxing. (coughs) Many ways to relax the body. A nice simple one is to have several long exhalations. 
exhaling engages part of the nervous system that is calming, soothing, repairing and refueling. You might move your awareness through your body, relaxing major parts of it. You can also get a sense of relaxing emotionally, relaxing the heart. Relaxing mentally. Letting go of stressing, relaxing the mind. Not numbing or suppressing, but rather softening, easing. Stay alert, it can help to maintain an upright posture. It can also help sometimes to open the eyes or to stand up, whatever you like. The third suggestion is to warm the heart. Here too, as always, gently, and as a matter of encouragement and opening. For example, bringing to mind beings you care about, beings who care about you. The relationship doesn't need to be perfect. There's simply an opening to and an encouraging of a lovingness, a friendliness, a compassion. In other words, mingled with an ongoing awareness of your body, there's also an awareness of lovingness. Received and given.
It could be simply a diffuse sense of kindness, benevolence. pervading your mind, perhaps rippling out from you like waves or ripples of energy. could be a sense of warmth, warm-heartedness, entwined with the sensations of breathing, mingled together. The fourth suggestion, and by the way, feel free to go at your own pace, but I'll keep moving along here. The fourth suggestion is to help yourself feel safer. There may not be perfect safety available, and yet usually we can feel safer and we let ourselves being aware of being in a protected setting here, among good people, being aware of any subtleties of anxiety or uneasiness and letting them go. is all right, right now, continuously. Helping yourself really register the fact that there's enough air to breathe. Breathing is going on. The living body is continuing. You may not have been all right in the past. You may not be all right in the future. And still you can help yourself be aware of the fact of ongoing basic all rightness now and now. What a relief.
if it's real for you, seeing what it's like to have a mind utterly uncolored by any anxiety. Utterly free in the moment. Noticing that you can be alert and vigilant about potential threats while simultaneously feeling utterly safe in this moment. Utterly at ease now. The fifth suggestion is to encourage some positive feelings. They may well be present already, such as reassurance, comfort at being safe, positive emotions of kindness, friendliness, love. The Buddha encouraged happiness as skillful means. It's fine to think of things you're grateful for, glad about. Joy is a factor of concentration. Bliss, a factor of awakening. Not chasing or straining for positive feelings, more giving yourself over to. Happiness or well-being, gratitude, even amidst other emotions such as sorrow or anger or pain. Thinking of things that could bring a little smile. If you like, taking gratitude or gladness as your object of attention for a little while. If you like, you can marinate in gratitude.
And then the final factor is what the Buddha described as quieting the mind. A lot of quieting has probably already occurred. This is not about suppressing the mind, but tranquilizing it. He talked about tranquilizing the body. He talked about tranquilizing the mind itself, the thoughts and feelings that move through it. What helps here is not to suppress anything, but to value stillness. Find the pleasure in tranquility. Perhaps imagining something very tranquil. Perhaps a still mountain lake. You might also be aware of a level or place in your own mind that is very tranquil, very still. And you can increasingly rest your awareness there. And then on the basis of whatever steadiness of mind you've been cultivating here, in a moment I'll suggest that you pick some object of attention, such as the sensations of breathing, and sustain awareness of that object for five minutes in a row. With the breath, can help to apply your attention to the beginning of an inhalation and sustain attention for its duration deliberately. Remain aware in that little pause between inhalation and exhalation. And then apply attention deliberately to the beginning of the exhalation. Sustaining attention to it for its duration. A little bit like being an ice skater who plants your foot at the beginning of an inhalation or exhalation 
and then glides along the inhalation or exhalation until you plant your attention again at the beginning of the next cycle. Allowing other things to appear in awareness, but being very disengaged from them in real time. As a teacher of mine once put it, devoted to the breath and renouncing all else for the next five minutes.
And then as we take the next couple minutes to finish up, you might like to explore what it's like to sustain steadiness of mind as you allow your eyes to begin to open and you're more engaged with the outer world while staying very steady. In a moment, how about we slide into a break? Feel really free to continue meditating or be meditative. A teacher of mine once said that we should finish a formal period of practice like a runner moving through the finish line of a race. You keep running through the finish line. You don't just change the channel and shift gears uh, too quickly. So um, how about come back at, uh, in 20 minutes, at 10 minutes after 11? I'm happy to chat with you during the break and stay steady. See you at 10 minutes after 11.